we're kind of f- finishing up a series we've been on for the last few weeks that we've been calling Learning to Breathe. Um, and in this series, we're talking about prayer. And the reason we're calling the series Learning to Breathe is because prayer, for those of us who are looking to be in relationship with our Creator, is as essential to that relationship as breathing is to our physical life. Uh, it's necessary for us to understand what it looks like to be in communication with God. Uh, and Jesus gives us a framework for that in what is kind of traditionally called the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, depending on your background, um, that we find in Matthew's Gospel and his biography of Jesus. So we've been looking at that the last, this is the fourth uh, week in the series. This will be our final week. And we're going to look at the last section together. Um, so what we'll do is we're going to put the, the prayer up on the screen here and we're going to read the prayer together. We're going to pray it essentially together. Again, this is something a little different for us. We don't do this every week, um, but I think it's a great opportunity for us collectively to, uh, to pray this prayer um, and for us to, I mean, there's a way that you learn something when you say it that you don't learn the same way when you read it. Um, so it's a good a learning opportunity for us as well. So we're going to read the prayer together, pray it together. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this morning, we're going to focus on that last session. And again, these these uh, kind of separations, these, these sections are, are artificial. Um, that's supposed to be read together. Uh, but I think there is a way that we can get at some different themes that Jesus is giving us. And the one we're going to look at this morning is the section that says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, at first glance, those might seem like two very different sections. Uh, like, why would we combine those um, forgive us our debts, feels like something that's kind of different from lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that is true in some ways. I think that there is a lot kind of wrapped up in this idea of temptation and what it means to be delivered from the evil one, or in some translations, from evil, that is worth exploring. But the reason why I think it's important to look at this together is I actually think Jesus intended for us to look at these together. And here's why. Because immediately after he prays this prayer, he says this. You'll see it up on the screen. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So we read, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He immediately goes into that. Now, it could simply be that Jesus is kind of distracted, right? And that he's talking about forgiving of sins, and then he moves into delivering from evil and temptations, and he's like, oh, wait, wait back to the, the forgiving of sin things. It could be something like that, and I'm being obviously probably more lighthearted with that than I need to be. But I don't think this is kind of a, just kind of, we're going to go from one thing to the next and then back to this other thing. That there's an intentional thing that Jesus is doing here in framing this idea of asking for forgiveness and offering forgiveness around this, this idea of temptation and evil, and then going back into this necessary 
component where we offer forgiveness to others. So I want to explore that a little bit with you today um, and what possibly Jesus is getting at when he lays this out for us. I think as we read this, Jesus tells us two really important things about forgiveness. The first is that we need it. You and I, individually, need forgiveness. Now, when we think about what particular tests or temptations, when you look at this uh, phrase, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, uh, another perfectly literal, appropriate translation for that word temptation would be test. It's simply this, this kind of challenge or test that you face that you need to overcome. And so there are, I think there are a couple of tests that we face when it comes to this idea of believing that we as individuals need to be forgiven. And the first is this. I think for, for some of us, it's really easy to believe that we're actually okay. That, not that we're perfect. We would never say that, you know, we never make mistakes but that we're kind of ultimately okay. Like, we don't really need to be forgiven. Now, we might say, kind of, it's clear that there is evil externally, right? I mean, especially in a week like this week, it's not that difficult to identify external evil that exists in the world, kind of on a meta level. We can look at things like the terrorist attacks in Paris and rightly say, that's evil. We can look at the violence and oppression that causes millions of displaced people to flood into other countries as refugees. And we can look at that and say, that's evil. We can look at issues like human trafficking and rightly say, that's evil. That's not difficult. And it is necessary. We should be doing it. But it's also very kind of okay culturally for us to do that. What becomes a little hairier, a little more challenging, is when we start to identify not just the evil that exists out there, but the evil that exists in here. Our own personal inclination towards evil. Our selfishness that would allow us to ignore the pain around us because we're so consumed with our own day-to-day activities. Our greed that causes us to accumulate more and more and more, despite the fact that there is desperate poverty all around us. Our lust that causes us to look at people who are created in God's image and use them as objects for our own pleasure. Our pride that moves us away from God and others because we're so convinced that we need to be self-made, self-reliant. Our hatred that stews just underneath the surface, ready at any moment to burst through at the first perceived slight. Our judgment that causes us to reject people who are different than us, ideologically, ethnically, socioeconomically, they're different. And so we separate ourselves from them. In all of those ways, and many more, we see that evil does not simply exist out there somewhere, though that is true, but that evil also exists in here, that we have a tendency towards 
evil in ways that we're really not that comfortable with most times. And if the Bible is anything, it's honest about our human condition, about what we experience as people, even when we struggle to be honest with that. There's a, uh, a passage from one of the prophets in the Old Testament, these people who spoke for God to the people. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 6, Isaiah says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. This kind of clear recognition that everybody, each one of us individually, chooses towards our own self-interest, our own like self-protection, self-reliance. We choose away from God. We create space between us and our Creator. We move in the opposite direction of this God who gives himself in love for all. We withhold love. We choose selfishness, self-centered living. We choose to, as the Bible would call it, sin. What Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer is that this is a critical recognition we need to recognize that we are people in need of forgiveness. So the first tendency or the first test that we face or one of the temptations or tests that we experience is this idea that we don't actually need that, that we're okay the way we are. And Jesus kind of, he challenges that with this prayer. But the second thing I think that he also challenges that many of us face when we think about this idea of personal forgiveness is that we are hopelessly, irreparably, irreparably damaged. That not only are we kind of messed up and sinful and we, we can acknowledge those ways that we, we choose evil and, and hurt others, but we're kind of without hope in that. We constantly live under this weight of guilt and shame that we just can't get out from under. And we don't think God has any desire for us to get out from under. We think God takes some kind of sadistic pleasure in reminding us of how horrible and jacked up we are. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think guilt is entirely bad. I think guilt actually serves a really useful purpose in our lives. I love what Brene Brown, who's a sociologist, giver of TED Talks, author now, um, I love what she says about this. Uh, She's Uber positive person. If you've ever heard Brene, Brene Brown, um, I recommend her. She's great. She's uber positive, but she says this about guilt, and I love it. She says, I'm just going to say it. I'm pro guilt. Guilt is good. Guilt helps us stay on track because it's about our behavior. It occurs when we compare something we've done or failed to do with our personal values. And I think that's really true. It's Guilt can be a really helpful tool. It is a really helpful tool that points us to the reality that we fall short. We don't do the things we ought to do. And if you don't do the thing you ought to do and you feel guilty about that, that's actually really good. It's kind of like pain, right? Pain can, is actually a really good thing. It's a good thing that our bodies experience pain because they indicate to us that there's something wrong. The problem becomes when either we stop experiencing pain, which is kind of like this first test that I mentioned, this first thing we're tempted to, this belief that we don't need to be forgiven. It's like we don't experience pain. We're numb to it. If you're familiar with the skin disease leprosy, 
that's the issue with leprosy. It's that your, your nerves cease to, to function. And so you don't feel things, which might sound cool until you realize that the problem is, right, like if you bump your arm and you accidentally get a scratch there and you don't know it because you don't experience pain, then it gets infected and you might have to lose your arm or you could die, right? So actually not experiencing pain at any level is a serious issue. And so pain is good. Guilt is good in the same way. But in the sa- like, just like pain, if it's chronic, if you can't escape from pain, if there's no relief from pain, It's difficult to live under that. It's the same with guilt. If guilt is simply the air that we breathe, what we live under, this constant sense that we're hopelessly, irreparably damaged, it's a really difficult existence. Jesus tells us that both of these, this I don't need to be forgiven and there's no way I can get forgiven, are both lies. That the point of this section in the prayer is at very least for us as individuals that we both need to be forgiven and we can be forgiven. This is in fact kind of a a really condensed version of what we might call the gospel, the good news of what Jesus is all about. Paul, one of the early church leaders, summarizes this in one of his letters in the New Testament when he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. Paul says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as Paul kind of condenses all of this for us, he points out both this deep need for forgiveness and this gracious offer of forgiveness that we receive in Christ. That in in Jesus' death and resurrection we are both faced with our mess, our sin, our brokenness, and also with the offer of forgiveness, all in one. Through the cross, our debt is fulfilled, our sins are forgiven. And this is, in fact, what, if you, when we talk about conversion, this is what conversion is, right? So, Conversion is not simply this kind of intellectual assent to something about who God was or who Jesus was, that Jesus, the man, was in fact God in the flesh. I mean, that's important. But it's not just acknowledging that intellectually. It's coming to a place where we recognize, and I need what God is offering in Jesus. I myself need forgiveness. I need rescued from my debt and reconciled to God. So the first thing Jesus is pointing out for us is this individual need for forgiveness. But the second thing is just as important, and in fact they're tied. It's this need to offer forgiveness, right? So we need forgiveness, and we need to offer forgiveness, now, I think the big temptation, I'm so tempted to walk here, I keep wanting to, like, I'm shift. I, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, I think the big temptation around this idea of offering forgiveness 
is our sense of justice, right? Like when we think about forgiving someone who has wronged us, many of us struggle with it because it just doesn't seem right. I mean, after all, they wronged us. They did something that was perhaps evil, maybe just kind of bad, but one way or another, someone else's choices had a negative impact on our lives. And we think that forgiveness simply means, well, we're kind of like, I don't know if you ever remember the, the SNL sketch where uh, you had the, I forget who played the character, um, but it, the character, their response to everything was, no big whoop, right? So like, oh, my daughter's on drugs, no big whoop, right? I mean, that was kind of the, and you're just like, ah. Um, and we kind of think forgiveness is like that. Like, ah, no big whoop, the thing you did, ah, we're okay, good. And so we think forgiveness is making light of something. It's minimizing what happened. It's saying, that thing you did, it's really not a big deal. Don't worry about it. We also think it means we have to pretend like nothing ever happened. That if somebody did something to us, then we need to kind of make it all poof, go away, and just act like everything's cool. That there was never any offense ever. But that's not actually what forgiveness is. That actually, forgiveness requires that you first name that something wrong was done. You can't actually offer forgiveness if there's not a recognition that something was done that needs to be forgiven. There's a Croatian theologian, which makes me feel really nerdy just even saying those words, but there's a Croatian theologian and Yale professor, to add to the nerdiness, um, named Miroslav Volf. And he's written a number of books, one being uh, a book called Free of Charge. And in this book, he talks about this idea of forgiveness. And he kind of frames it around the story of his parents uh, and their loss of his brother when he was five years old. When his brother was five, uh, again, they lived in in Croatia during the war, and uh, he was kind of out playing with some soldiers. He had kind of gotten away from the house. Uh, The woman who was taking care of him took her eyes off him for a few minutes, and he kind of got out the fence and, and went to play with a group of soldiers. And these soldiers, you know, being kind of in the thick of the war were just loved the fact that here was this child full of energy and joy that they could take a few minutes to play with. And so they did. And one of the soldiers took a a particular liking to him and in, in his playing kind of set him up on this carriage alongside of him and was taking him for a ride. And just because he wasn't thinking about what he was doing, at one point they passed this gate while Volf's brother kind of leaned to the side and his head got trapped between the carriage and the gate and he, he died. And Wolf talks about his parents dealing with this reality. Like, what do we do with the fact that this young man with no ill intent but with all the carelessness that comes with you know, being in that age and that setting, made a decision that cost us our son's life. What do we do about that? And his parents chose to forgive. They chose to acknowledge the, the wrong, the sin, the evil that was done, not intentionally, 
and to release him, to not hold it against them. Wolf talks about the fact that you know, they, could have, they could have brought some kind of uh, litigation against him. They could have tried to sue to get something from him and his family. But they knew that any steps they took would just further destroy this young man's life for something that admittedly was stupid, but not intended to be so. And so they forgave. And Wolf talks about this. when He, he, he talks about coming, coming to his mom and asking her, how did you do this? How were you able to forgive? And she talks through the painful process. And Wolf kind of reflects on his, um, kind of, he, again, he condenses this idea of what he's learned from his mom and her learning to forgive. He says this, Condemnation and blame are intrinsic to the process of forgiveness. It is morally wrong to treat an adulterer and a murderer as if they had not committed adultery and murder. More precisely, it is wrong to treat them that way until the offenses have been named as offenses. That's why such offenses should not be disregarded. Instead, they should be forgiven. The generous release of a genuine debt is the heart of forgiveness. Hear that again. The generous release of a genuine debt is the heart of forgiveness. That doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy, not by a long shot. In fact, Wolf would say, he quotes his mother as saying, this was the most painful experience of her life. That in fact, for for many of us, to choose to forgive might be a lot harder initially than if we choose to hold it against the person, if we choose to kind of withhold forgiveness and choose bitterness or resentment. But if we do, it's impossible for us to ultimately receive healing. It's kind of like if, you know, if you get a scab and you think somehow that by, because it, it bothers you, because it itches, because it, it's kind of it's annoying that you think you got to scratch it, you got to pick at it, you got to you got to get at it. If you do that, you're ultimately you just keep opening it. You keep opening yourself up for infection and something worse. And this is what unforgiveness does. It digs, it opens. It puts you at risk, not at risk. It it puts you in a, a really devastating position. Which is why Jesus presents forgiveness as conditional. Now that sounds really harsh, even when I say it, even when I believe it to be true, because Jesus says here, it is true. But this is what Jesus says, that forgiveness is conditional. And he tells a story later in Matthew's gospel that I want to read to you, because he tells this story to illustrate what this reality is like for us. It's a parable. Jesus often tells stories to illustrate points. And he tells us uh, this parable in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I'm going to read it to you. It'll be up here on the screen. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But 
When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ouch! That is a tough passage. I mean, and in some ways, it almost seems counter some of the other ways that Jesus describes God. Like, is this the same God who lovingly welcomes us in with all of our junk and mess and, and offers forgiveness? How does, this, how does this match up? Like, torture us? Really? That's a little intense. But here's the thing. If you are currently living in unforgiveness, you are being tortured. That is your reality. It's quite possible, even probable, that your relationships are suffering. That you find it increasingly difficult to trust people, to let them in. You're probably struggling to experience gratitude because whenever something happens that might otherwise lead you to be grateful, you're reminded of this person and what they did to you. You might be increasingly anxious or even depressed. Your life may lack a sense of meaning and purpose. I'm not making this stuff up. This is actually what if, if you, uh, the Mayo Clinic kind of identifies as symptoms of unforgiveness in someone's life. That repeatedly, as they look at people who harbor unforgiveness, who refuse to release someone who owes them a debt, these things are present in their lives. Maybe not all of them, maybe, but some of them. When we choose unforgiveness, we choose into a torturous existence. Jesus is describing a reality lived in life in opposition to God and his ways. It reminds me of uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and our one daughter, Ellie, were driving somewhere. And as they were driving, they noticed there was an elderly gentleman kind of walking on the sidewalk. And it was one of those things where you almost didn't even, it didn't even compute. You just kind of looked over, saw there was a person there, and then they kind of kept driving. <clears throat> Two hours later, they happened to go back on the same street, and my daughter Ellie, who's 10, actually looked over and recognized, she's like, hey, there's that same guy there, like in the same spot. He was two hours ago. And my wife was like, oh, that seems problematic. Um, I'm pretty sure he didn't intend to. I mean, because it's not like, you know, he's not, it's not a spot that one would typically stand for two hours. Uh, particularly if it looks like, I mean, it looked like he was trying to step, you know, but for two hours, just trying to step. Um, and so finally, she, she like 
pulled over, and she and my daughter kind of went over to, to see if he needed any help. And she quickly discovered, like, ah, he really needs help. I mean, he couldn't really articulate what he wanted very well, and she had a hard time understanding him, and he, he really couldn't physically move. Um, and then uh, some people that uh, my wife knew drove by and saw her struggling with this guy, and so they stopped and, and, and got out, and then someone else uh, stopped and got out. So there's like three women who are, who are working together to help this elderly gentleman. They finally kind of managed to drag him to the bus stop on the corner. And spending all of this time trying to figure out, like, what, how do we help him? What do we do? He's saying he needs to go downtown, but he seems kind of confused. And, and how do we really, what do we do about this? And, and eventually, someone was like, look, we just, let me just call the police, see if they know anything about this guy, if, if they've got, got any sense of kind of what his story is. Maybe they can offer something. So they called, and, a, and an officer showed up, and some first responders, some EMTs uh, came, and they talked to this guy, and they, they kind of tried to figure out, like, what do you need? Can we, can we offer you a ride somewhere? What can we do? And and at the end of the day, he basically was like, mm, no, thank you. Like, I, I want to go here, and this is how I'm going to do it. And so, thank you, but no thank you. And they had to kind of just leave him there. And we weren't happy about that. Like, we didn't like that. Uh, the next, he was actually there overnight. The next day, I, kinda, I took him a meal over, and I sat with him, and I talked with him, and prayed with him, and I tried to figure out how we could help him, and again, called the police, and I was like, hey, look, I know he's, he's not doing anything wrong. I'm not asking you to do something. I'm just asking, what can we do? Is there something else? And the officer was kind of like, look, I hear you, but we can't force him to do anything. Like, he's not breaking any laws. He's sitting at the bus station. Can't do anything. And I feel like this is what it's like for us when we choose to withhold forgiveness. We choose to refuse to be a part of the life of God, which is centrally, like it's about this generous, loving creator who's offering forgiveness and love to the world. And when we say, eh, not for that person, not for that group of people, not for them, then we put ourselves in a prison of our own making, in opposition to the creator who wants to reach out in love to the world and wants to do it through us. And that's the second problem when we choose not to forgive. Not only do we not receive forgiveness, but we stand in opposition to what God is doing in the world and offering forgiveness to others. I mean, if you've been a part of this, or even just remember the prayer we read in the beginning, one, the, the thing we prayed was, your kingdom come, your will be done. Central to the kingdom of God coming is this offer of forgiveness. And so if we're saying, yeah, but not for them, then what we're choosing to do is stand in opposition to what God is wanting to do in the world. And we can't claim to be both for God and against others. It just doesn't work. We can't claim to be for God but against those for whom Christ died. It just doesn't work. And again, that is not in any way to minimize. I mean, some of you have experienced deep pain, evil done against you, not just kind of, you know, uh, someone accidentally did something that caused some long-term 
repercussions. But somebody intentionally doing things to you, whether it's physically or emotionally, that cause deep pain, maybe change the trajectory of your life. And I am not in any way minimizing that or saying what you need to do is just pretend like that isn't true. Not at all. But what forgiveness does is it says, that is evil. That thing is wrong. That is against the nature of the way God intended the world to be. That ought never to happen to anyone. We acknowledge it fully, but then we release it. And that may be a process for you, okay? You, you may need some time with that. You might need some help working through that. It doesn't, it, for many of us, it can't be an instant. It's not a, a, a switch that we flip. It's not like, okay, we're good now. There's a lot to sort through. I get it. But the alternative of simply choosing to harbor bitterness and resentment for the rest of our lives is destructive, ultimately, to us, to us physically, to us spiritually, to our souls. Just as we prayed before, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, and the expectation that God would do that in and through us, when we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, what we're saying is, what we're saying is allow me to be a channel of your forgiveness to others. As difficult as that is at times, help me both to communicate and demonstrate the forgiving love of God in the relationships around me, in the world around me. So how might we do that? How can we forgive? Real quickly, a couple of, a couple of thoughts. Again, this is not... Uh, these things are layered, and, and depending on it, you know, there are all sorts of layers of kind of uh, evil done against us. Uh, if you're me, you may think that the person uh, who cut you off in traffic is a certain form of evil, and you may need to work through that. That level of evil is a little different than someone who may have experienced abuse, right? Like, so what you might need to do to work through that and the forgiveness is quite a bit more complex and nuanced, and it may require some help. In fact, it probably does. Whereas, if you're over here and it's the traffic thing, you probably just need to let it go. Um, we can talk more about that later, and my kids are probably calling me a hypocrite right now. Um, but three quick things that I think for us to keep in mind as, as we choose to forgive, as we choose to be channels of the forgiving love of God. Um, first of all, we need to practice being thankful for how we've been forgiven. We need to remember to reflect on the ways that we are jacked up and have done really horrible things to people, even though we like to think we're pretty good people. Like any one of you, if they, someone was asked you, like, are you, like, good? Are you evil? I mean, you'd be, if there's, like, a, you know, if there's a trajectory here, like, I'm kind of, like, I'm more towards the good than the, I'm not good, but I'm not evil. Like, I'm generally kind of cool, right? We all kind of minimize the ways that we hurt others. But if we stop and think about how much we've been forgiven for and learn to practice being grateful, it's amazing how that might impact our ability to have grace and forgiveness for others. So first, practice being thankful. Second, spend time with other people who value forgiveness. You know what's really hard to do? Like, if you're complaining about someone 
and other people are piling on, and they're like, yeah, that was horrible. They're jerks. It's really easy to just feel justified in that and continue to kind of feel that. But if you're around other people who are encouraging you to choose a different way, that can become a little bit more complicated, right? And so what Wolf would say, again, Miroslav Wolf, he says, do you want to become a forgiving person? Seek the company of forgiven forgivers. If you want to become a forgiving person, seek the company of forgiven forgivers. Spend time with people that you notice are particularly grateful and willing to offer grace and forgiveness to others if you want to learn to be that way yourself. And then finally, and this sounds completely oversimplified, I get it, we need to choose to forgive. Like, not in the moment, but before. We need to choose right now that we are going to obey Christ when he says that forgiveness is a central part to what it means to follow him and say like, all right, I'm going to be someone who forgives and I'm going to start now and whatever happens, I'm going to choose forgiveness. Philosopher Iris Murdoch writes, at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. I think that's really true. The way you respond in the moment something happens is a result of years of you practicing a particular way of life, a particular way of thinking. And if you want to become someone who forgives, then you need to begin choosing now to be that kind of person and practice forgiving in the little things and in the big things. These aren't all the things that we need to consider, but I think they are some of the critical things for us that we need to begin to practice, to work towards, if we're going to become the kind of people who recognize that we both are in need of forgiveness and want to be channels of forgiveness to others.